What if we could reimagine the traditional notion of a high flyer? Hey friends, welcome back or welcome to the High Flyers podcast where we do reimagine a high flyer, showcase the brightest and most relatable role models and companies and their journey from sunrise to today. As one of the premier products in our Curiosity Center lineup, providing on-demand intelligence, featuring Olympic athletes, business and cultural leaders, students, journalists, investors, founders, and more from around the world to help you be 1% better every single day. I'm your host, Vita Tagawal, and let's have some fun. Today, in this episode 132, I'm speaking with Osher Ginsberg. He's a broadcaster, TV show host, podcaster, and notable for being the host of the Australian Idol, The Bachelor, and the only Australian to have hosted live network TV in the US. I must admit, I went into this a little unsure. Osha is a pro at interviews, but he was candid, vulnerable, and this is definitely one of my favorite conversations to date. Learn about Osha's sunrise in Brisbane, Australia, with both parents being doctors. I found his reflections on being a white immigrant and being a muso in a sports school really intriguing. We cover how he found clarity in his career early on, manufacturing serendipity and how that's led to incredible opportunities, not achieving his radio and music dreams, transitioning to network TV and evolving his identity, including a name change. I was surprised to learn radio is much harder to host compared to TV and really valued Osher's candor on his battles with addiction, exactly how he prepares for a TV show shoot, make sure to note down the five D's and the six P's and I enjoyed asking Osha about how he balances his public persona with his family role and what seeded his advocacy for climate change. It's now time to explore your curiosity. Please enjoy. Before we get to Osha, I want to share something with you. Each week, I meet many tech entrepreneurs and investors, and a big challenge they all face is taking care of their reporting and accounting needs. And after researching, I came across Fullstack Advisory, which is now my number one recommendation to all founders for anything accounting and tax related. And Fullstack have been rated as Australia's top accounting firm for tech founders and investors. It's simple, just open your browser and type in fullstack.com.au and get in touch with the team. I'll even give you 10 seconds to do it now before you hear from Osha. That's fullstack.com.au. Let me know how you go. And now it's time for today's conversation with Osha Ginsberg. Please enjoy. Osha Ginsberg, welcome to the show. Oh, mate, thank you so much for having me. And, and thank you for being flexible around when we could do this. I, I understand that you help, you were open to us shifting the time for this quite a, quite a lot. So thank you. I appreciated a previous guest and our mutual friend, Eitan Linko, speaks very highly of you. So anyone that he speaks highly of, and I've been a fan of your work for years. So Thanks, this is a real thrill and I think our audience is really excited. Eitan's a really special guy. I don't think, you know, I think in years from now, it'll come out, you know, I think in years from now, we'll look back and go, wow, that's the things, but wow, Eitan was behind <laughs> that. He's a very special, he's a very special man and um has his you know real delicate balance of how much public um 
attention that mm. he draws uh, and there's only so much bandwidth he tends to step to one side and allow the projects he's working on be the story um even in the when you know when he's been the chair of this or the standing chair for that he but who he is and and how he does it is extraordinary and we'll find that out i reckon in, you know 10 20 years we'll go what you talked about flexibility i think trying to lock him in took us 12 months let's start with some fun facts i should have set the scene where were you born and where do you live now well i was born in london england uh to two two people who are at one point in their lives both refugees from their own country and i i'm an immigrant to australia but i'm white so no one cares it's true it's sad but it's true um and i now live in the the kind of eastern bits of sydney north of maroubra and south of vaucluse yeah very nice and from a work perspective what was your first job and what do you do now uh, I think my first my first job job I think was just mining the phones at my dad's medical practice. He was a rheumatologist up in Brisbane, and I remember your dad was a doctor. Wow! Yeah, both doctors. Yeah, um, four sons, none of them doctors. <laughs> <laughs> Very funny. Um, and yeah, I think that was I think I was eleven, and I did that kind of on and off on the weekends um, for cash. And then um, and now what do I do? Well, the best that I can. <laughs> how, how would you let's let's we'll jump around in this conversation how would you describe that's a, way to answer, that's a terrible way to answer that question um i you know i think m the most high profile jobs i have are on network television mm -hmm. in australia uh i also uh, have been podcasting for uh, 10 years now i also have written I write books. I also also have written a lot of articles and art and things like this. Um, I do a lot of keynote speaking. Um, I do live shows. I've I've done a live show based on my book where I sang songs and presented it. It was like really fun. And and now I'm doing a live show where I'm essentially I'm putting on a fake news show, not a fake not mm. a fake news show, but a fake mm -hmm. news show. So the news is real, but the stories are fake. Um, and it's really kind of taking the piss out of the, you know, what the news has become. And um, yeah, we did 10 shows at the Melbourne National Comedy Festival. We did a bunch of stuff in Sydney before that. We just did the Sydney Comedy Festival. Um, it's, it's, it's great. I'm, I'm cutting the pilot right now. I'm going to pitch it to network. Like it's all, so I, you know, and I try to make sure that my kids remember my name and, and my wife still feels nice. like she loves me. You know, you know, you say that, and I, I always struggle when I go to a party. People go, Vidit, what do you do? And I say, I do a bunch of things, and I don't do as many things as you do. How, how do you describe it when you meet someone for the first time and they go, hey, I'm, I'm so-and-so, Osha, what do you do? What's your go-to pitch? What's your, like, 30-second intro? Oh, mate, I, I don't really have it. Like, you know, the line that I – the best that I can line is I stole that from a, a guy I knew. Uh, he was in the Middle East and – um he flew F eighteen F eighteens for the uh, for the Air Force in the Middle East. And I asked him, I was like, What do you do, man? And he was, you know, ex fighter pilots. They all have this kind of they they walk with some big dick <laughs> energy. And he was drinking a beer and he's like, I said, What do you do, man? He goes, The best that I can. <laughs> like the actual guy from the Dosa Kisa. He was like, Holy shit. Such yeah. a good line. I love it. Uh, what do I say to people? I don't know. It's like I I work in broadcasting, mm. you know. I you know, I, I have this 
I'm not Liam Neeson, but I have a very particular set of skills. It's only really good at one thing. Um, I'm, I'm no good with numbers really. And I'm, I'm not very good with cooking. Uh, I can't really do anything very well mechanically. Um, but I'm able to communicate ideas to people quite well. And that's kind of how I've been paying the bills since yeah, I was 20. We will get into that. And as you know, the purpose of this show is to reimagine a high flyer. Is there a high flyer you know who you feel hasn't got the recognition they deserve? Mate, do high flyers go from month to month on their mortgage and daily bills? Because that's what I'm doing. I don't want anyone to think that I'm just like working on some fucking massive mm. lump sum and, you know, I'm just doing shit for fun. Fuck, dude, I'm I am so busy and I'm creating so much because I – um, I'm 13 years sober and during the time that I was drinking and using, I, I didn't know what superannuation was. I didn't know, I didn't think about retirement. And then I, you know, there's, you know, gambling and idiot investments, da, 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 divorce, la, 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 you know, 2011, open my eyes, 20, sorry, 2012, open my eyes, go, oh shit. I'm like, I'm 38. I've got 22 years of work left. I'm going to live way longer than that much money is going to let me go. Christ. <laughs> and so I just, you know, I, I kind of, everything kind of just slips through my fingers as is not uncommon in people who um, have addiction problems. And um, yeah, so I would just, I just work real hard uh, to try to create things with, long, with longevity and things that scale and things that um, will serve me. I, I've chosen an industry where I'm going to age out uh, of my ability to most effective and earn the most amount of money. That's part of it. My product, my packaging, unfortunately, um, cannot really be altered that much. And once you start to alter your packaging uh, a bit too much, you're unable to do the job very well. Being able to move my face is an important part of me being expressive doing my job. I can make myself look younger, but my mm. face won't move much. That will make me mm. shit at my job. <laughs> so um, I'm real aware of that, you know, and I've got these kids that, you know, I'm going to be paying hex fees in my seventies, man. So I yeah. better get it together. And I've got to make sure that I set a bunch of things up that are going to keep running once I can no longer move very well. So to tell me, Osha, like again, back to like the high fire concept, who are those people that don't get the recognition in your industry? Like what are the behind the scenes people oh. that bring you to TV screens every night? Uh, what do you want to talk about? Who are the high flyers in my industry or? Yeah, like not names, not people that get recognition, but like to do your work. We were chatting about this earlier where I asked you, do you have a team? And you kind of said you don't, you do it yourself and you've got a few part-time folks. Oh, right, right. right. Okay. Who are those Who are those reimagined high flyers that you wish got more recognition? Because you're on screen and they're sort of behind the scenes. Right? Oh, look, there's, the I'd say the people in Australian television, at least, um, who who really do um, a, a lot of extraordinary work. Uh, the, the people who do the commissioning of shows and, and projects and the people who, who put their capital behind risk essentially, you know, and then there's the people that they get on board to execute that. And some of the, the, the visions of, um, the executive producers that I work under who, when you get high enough, as you'll, any one of your listeners will know, you may have started as the creative founder of something, but eventually shareholders are going to want to answer, get some, get some questions answered. And you're going to have to ask them, you're going to have to learn how, why that number on the spreadsheet isn't bigger or, or why it's getting small so quickly. You know, the, 
the bal- the delicate balance between the art and the science and the fiscal science that exists in in a business uh, is very very real in television and real in a minute to minute ratings kind of way. Um, I don't know any other industries where you have minute to minute ratings. In radio, you get it like every six weeks. Like TV, it's literally minute to minute, and they can point at it and go, "See there, where everyone." change channels that's when you said something and you go oh <laughs> they can point at it wow we lost one hundred and twenty thousand people in melbourne <laughs> okay <laughs> you know that stuff is real 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 that's the kind of pressures that we work under and you know there's executive producers um who are at that level who understand the balance of pushing things creatively and creating a product that is doing something new and and are valuable for their audience and, and paying off the you know, the, the trust of the sponsor at the same time as justifying its production budget uh, because television in Australia is expensive to make. And, um, yeah, there's some people that do some pretty good juggling uh, way above my pay grade, promise you. Yeah. Let's, let's bring the conversation back to you. And I said we'll start with your sunrise, your childhood. You touched on it earlier with the UK and, and refugee parents, white parents as you called it. Yeah, <laughs> Talk about that. What are your memories of? I think you moved to Australia when you were I was four months old, I was five months old. Yeah, so Australia is home. Yeah. What was what was growing up like in in Brisbane? I think it was right. Um, odd. Uh, I grew up in in Brisbane. Um, Queensland's a very strange place. Um, that still is really struggling, like most of Australia, but in Queensland is quite powerfully there really struggling to escape the um you know the the shackles of colonialism and colonial uh, ideas and and the structures that have been set up by colonialism um you know I, I grew up before and during and after the fitzgerald inquiry which is a massive um inquiry into police corruption in australia right um you'll hear kevin rudd talk about getting followed home by cars from the special branch um, when he was in uh, student politics and things like that. It was all very real, really very real. Made great music, made great art. You know, bands like The Saints and The Go-Betweens and um, later on, you know, Regurgitator and Powderfinger and Resin Dogs and such um, made huge things uh, out of Brisbane. But, yeah, Brisbane was weird, very white, very – I was the only kid with my last name in the phone book. You know, we had a phone book in the old days. There was no one yeah. with my last name. Yeah. Um, there was no one who ate what we ate for lunch. You know, immigrant parents. Same and stuff. Jewish, Jewish. No, culture, right? a, this is the fun thing: is that um, okay. uh, I'm only half, and even then, it's just the top half. Right. So, um, <laughs> it's my father's side. So I got the right genes, uh, but the wrong chromosomes. So, right. uh, I, I definitely, you know, um, I uh, what's the word I look for? I. I, I really appreciate and um, I associate with and I feel a great affinity to the secular traditions of um, uh, the Jewish culture uh, around community and how those traditions of togetherness and helping are embedded into the, uh, the structure of life in that, in that community. And, and I adore that. But as far as, you know, any kind of, interventionist god i'm sorry it's not <laughs> and i knew that i was quite young when i figured i was about 11 i think when i figured i was like nah that can't be right i could see it wasn't for me 
And you talked about your parents being doctors, and I yeah. think you're the last person in terms of personality who'd be anywhere near a doctor, is my <laughs> assumption. So what, what was that like growing up around doctors? How did that influence you? Um, well, look, the best doctors are always very creative people because I have to come mm. up, you know, we watched Old Mate on House, you know, be amazing because he was coming up with creative solutions all the time. And the best doctors are, and I can say this having been saved by a couple of really very mm. smart doctors, very creative people. Um, you can't be a great researcher if you're not creative. You know, you can't know to ask a creative question to get a unusual answer if, you know, you don't have that creativity bug. And so my parents were both very creative people. Mum was an anaesthetist who retrained as a GP, and Dad's a, a rheumatologist, which is very, very tricky stuff. You can show up with rash, and your rash is really itchy, and you don't know why it's itchy. And Dad will go, mm. "Let's have a look at your hip." What? And then boom, there's some sort of bone thing going on. Mm. And you know, he was. Yeah, they don't practice anymore. But I think what um, was uh, interesting about growing up with my parents is they. Um, they both had an extraordinary appreciation for art and they really valued art and music and culture. And we spent our weekends going to orchestras and concerts and um, seeing all kinds of different music, like steel drums and, and, and Japanese koto and, and uh, all kinds of wild stuff and um, going to art galleries and seeing sculpture exhibitions and um, plays and mime and whatever came through Brisbane that was any at all cultural. They, they really valued that stuff. And they also very much instilled into me, at least, um, a sense of what it is to be, you know, the balance of science and and um, and feeling, you know. And here's the treatment that we will give to this particular person. And oh, a new research papers come out. Oh, that treatment's not good. This treatment's way better. Okay, well, there's what we'll do from today, and let go of the other thing completely. And that was really, you know, I didn't realize it at the time until as I grew up, and then you know, strange thoughts, how shall I put this? Um, uh, irrational thoughts about vaccinations and things started getting popularity. Mm. Um, I didn't really think about that until I realized how lucky I was to have been exposed to that um, of these two very, very smart people who did not feel at all not smart for not knowing an answer. I think that is a really, really powerful thing to to put in to a kid. Um, if Dr. Carl Kruzelnitsky is a very famous science communicator in Australia. And if you say something to him that he doesn't know yet, he's like, oh, I don't know about that. Tell me. <laughs> I, I don't tell me more. Or, you know, that curiosity is the way out of that feeling of like, well, that can't be fucking right. What do you know? Curiosity is the way out of that. If you're wondering, um, it doesn't mean at all that you're a, you know, you're dumb. It just means that you are about to be way smarter. <laughs> Mm, mm, mm. that's a great way to put it and i mean you're in the you talked about music what were you like at high school i think i'm always curious like i was someone who was trying to really figure out who i was through high school and i think i tried really hard to be someone i was not right what were you like in high school like was music always a interest oh yeah and you're not alone yeah. you gotta be someone that you're not but the high school's a time for that all right. Yeah. High were, you, were you the cool kid? Were you the no. cool kid or were you the quiet kid? No, no. I went to a football <laughs> school and I played music. So no. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. We were the, we were the kids in the corner, but I wore it like a badge of, um, unfortunately for me, I wore it like a, 
I think I, I think I relished a bit in the lower status that I put upon myself. Uh, I think I'd imagine I imagined a bit of that, not all of it, but I imagined a bit of that. Mm. Um, the, because I, I I guess I put myself. It's a psychological trick we do sometimes. It's like um, if we imagine ourselves in a lower status, even as though we're not, um, it justifies shitty behaviour to others. And well, I'm a teenager, you know, I'm figuring it out. Um, but I can see, you know, looking back now, I'm nearly fifty. You look back now and go. Uh, maybe, yeah, I didn't need to speak to that person that way. But I was 13. What the fuck? You know, you're figuring stuff out. It's time for learning it, right? Um, but, yeah, music was always it. It was always music. It was all I loved. Um, high school kind of missed me. I understand why now. But that very kind of Victorian era, Victorian, not state of Australia, but time of mm. history, uh, Victorian mm. <laughs> era rote learning thing mm. really did not go with the way that my brain worked i'm a i know i wasn't dumb but i just wasn't able to show the people who were asking me to prove otherwise in the methods they were asking me to prove it and that was really hard it was you know i felt i felt dumb i felt when all my mates got into uni and i didn't i was like it's pretty shit um uh, you know because by that point i'd stopped trying because I would still try, I'd try real hard and then, you know, the results would come back and they wouldn't reflect how hard I felt I tried. But I was doing the best I could with the, you know, the gears that I had in my gearbox. Um, turns out I've, you know, figured out ways to learn now and, you know, mm. um, there was a point where, flashing forward a bit, I, I went to business school in Amsterdam in about 2014 and I'm standing there at a whiteboard with someone who I know has a PhD and I was going one to one, I was going one for one, toe to toe with this person in this, um, you know, this, uh, I think we're doing an ideation session or something. And I, it was only then, like I'm 40 at this point going, I've lived my whole life thinking I was dumb. And here's this person with a PhD and I coming up with, from what everyone else in the room is seeing as fairly equal of value ideas to put on this whiteboard. Shit. <laughs> what a waste of time I've been telling myself for the last, you know, 20 years, 23 years. But, you know, I think education's changing a lot now, thankfully. Um, and, and we can, you know, that's my great hope is that my, we've got two kids and my youngest is nearly four that maybe we'll get to a point where the, the syllabus uh, also the requirements to pass the, the, the syllabus are at the end of the, the course. And then you can reverse engineer a bespoke way for the student to get there. So does that, if that means you have to have some kid do the whole thing in song, fine. Mm. At the end of it, they'll be able to sing you an entire song about graphing a parabola or across a something. Right. But for me, I was just like, I may as well have been taking Mandarin. Yeah, <laughs> thinking I was in French class, you know. <laughs> Literally, I was just like, I just did not know. And yeah, you know, I'd like to think that by the time Wolfie hits high school, that that's what he'll be. That's the kind of education he'll be able to get. Well, if it gives you any solace, I think I graduated year twelve with forty-two. Was my ATAR similar to you? I just was never a theory. Is kid. that out of a hundred? Out of a hundred, yeah. yeah, right, yeah, forty-two um, percent. And now I work with people from all walks of life and, and I've realized I am more practical than theoretical. I'm not yeah. great at rote learning. And I think that's, I don't know if you've seen that with 
people you went to school with where they were the smartest person in high school, but then in life they've turned out pretty average. Well, there's people like me and you who are average in high school and we've done all right in life. And I think that transition from school to life isn't always the A plus student doesn't always become the A plus person in life. Well, it's a, I guess the old thing, you know, everything schools just, I don't know. I don't really know what school is. Does it teach you everything you need? No. You know, can your parents teach you everything you need? I'm sure every parent's going to try. Yet, mm. you know, are we really going to spit? Are you ever going to get spat out into the society ready? No. But can you get spat out in a society feeling okay about not knowing the bits you don't know and then knowing how to go and learn the bits that you do know? I think that's the gap that we could really help people with. Mm. You mentioned earlier about not getting into university and you talked about music. What, what was success at, like, what did you want to do with your life after high school? No idea, mate. None at all. I completely... So where did you start? Where did you, because I, I, I think. I thought I wanted to be, I thought I wanted to go and do do drama. So I auditioned for two separate uh, universities and, and didn't get in. Um, mm. And I, I didn't even get into, this is no, by no means a disparagement on the university nor the course, even though it is the university and the course that often is the butt of many jokes on the Batuta Advocate. I didn't even get into art at Griffith, all right? right. Griffith Uni in Brisbane. And, I, I, you know, it, it, was, it was a real drag, um, I, you know, I, and I was, I felt just, I remember sitting on my front lawn opening the letter because we had the post back then, uh, opening the letter that had the score on it that, and I'm, you know, I remember just sitting there drinking a beer. I was still 17, but I still, I don't know how I had a beer, but I had a beer and just going, well, shit. Um, and look, the universe is an amazing place, mate. On that day, maybe an hour later, my phone rang and it was my friend Shane. And he said, Hey, um, my cousin has a band and they're looking for someone to operate the lighting rig. They do about four or five gigs a week. They wanted me to do it, but I, I just got into this course. Um, do you want to do it? Yes, I do. And I became a roadie for like 40 bucks cash in hand. So I was earning $20 a day, dude. Like, not even, I was earning 10 bucks a day. I was, it was fucking crazy. And this was in the 90s? Yeah, 92, yeah, wow. 40 bucks a gig. Wow. So probably there were 10 hour shifts probably. So I'm only like four bucks an hour. And were you living at home? Like, how were you funding oh, yeah, your life? Yeah, at the point I was living at home. You're living at home, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I was on and off unemployment for about two two years there, a year there. And there was this, this amazing moment that happened about a year, about like September of the year after I left school. I was, um, I, I just started working with another band who now paid me paid me fifty dollars a night, um, and we, it was a lot more travel with that, with that gig. But I was still working five nights a week and I, my hearing was, yeah, I wear hearing aids now and I've got two hernias out of all that. But um, this is an amazing thing. You know, you talk about how schools kind of missed me, but we've all got this one teacher or this one particular educator that really played a huge role. Mm-hmm. And it may have been a problem, fact that I had two younger brothers still in the school. Mm. Um, but the school counsellor called me up at my home number and you know i'm at home i'm doing nothing i'm watching sally jesse Raphael or something at 10 in the morning that's all i did 
waiting to go to work at two and then work till four in the morning. And she said, hey, what are you doing? I said, I'm doing this. She goes, listen, there's this new course at TAFE. It's a contemporary music course. Because I auditioned for the conservatorium as well and I didn't get in. Um, it's a contemporary music course. You should go audition for that. Oh, she actually, she called me in. She called me into the school. I remember showing up and um, she gave me the thing and, you know, I turned up to my school. By this point, I've got long hair and, you know, and I, I showed up and and I'm walking in. There's all the kids in their uniforms and stuff. And I'm like, this is weird. And I called her by her first name, which was weird. And she sat me down and she told me about this TAFE course. And I went, oh, yeah. So I got myself and she, I think she even helped me fill out the form. This is like a year later, man. Hmm. And I auditioned. I think 1,500 kids auditioned. And I got in. I couldn't believe it. And then I, so I went to this TAFE course, uh, which is contemporary music. It was essentially, you know, teaching you the business of being a, a musician in Australia, which they don't really teach you much. Um, whether it be someone, this is before DJs were everywhere. It was like, mm. okay, well, if you're going to, you know, play in the pub down the road, here's where your costs are and here's what your marketing is and you know, look out for this sort of stuff. Blah, blah, blah. It was that sort of thing. It was like a trade essentially, which it is. And so suddenly I'm like, I'm starting to go to this course every day. And I think there was 25 other people in the um, performance stream that I was in. I think it was like 10 or 15 in the um, audio engineering stream. I'm going to work. I'm going to school every day, like surrounded by people who were all going in the same direction, who understood why I was excited that John Frusciante was now playing with, you know, this is a early, this is like that only just put out Blood Sugar Sex Magic. Like it was like mm. a long time ago. It's like, and then talking to people about Frank Zappa and discovering Funkadelic and like, oh my gosh. And having other people say, hey man, you're a really good bass player. Well, you can really sing one. Like it does a lot for you. Um, ended up getting like honors in nearly everything. And that got me into business at QUT. And so I, I started doing business, but by this point I'd already started working in radio and I had to really have a long, hard look at it. The, the, again, I found myself back in this educational institution and I was like, I am beyond, I don't know how to learn. I know a bit more about how to learn now, but I didn't know how to learn then. I'm just sitting in this yeah. lecture theater with a notepad that I bought from Officeworks or whatever, going, <laughs> I, I don't know what to do with all of this. Sitting in a chute going, okay, I'm sitting here now. What happens now? We need you to do a thing. But what do you mean? A project? Uh, uh-huh. Do I need to go to the the, the farm news agent and get some colored cardboard? Like, what do I do? I don't know. What do I do? And I didn't know. I didn't know how to do any of it. Um, and so I, it was just way too hard. And so I, I dropped out right before the hex thing kicked in. But by this point, I was already working in radio. And so I just doubled down on that. And I got a very intense and epic education in broadcasting. Um, <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Full Stack Advisory. Tired of accountants who just don't understand your tech business? Full Stack Advisory is Australia's top tech accounting firm designed specifically for innovative tech founders and investors. They provide founder-friendly support across accounting and tax, R&D tax incentives, bookkeeping, and CFO advisory. So you can focus on what you do best, innovating and growing your business. Head across to fullstack.com.au and tell them Vidit from the High Flyers podcast sent you to have your accounting needs sorted by Stuart and the team. That's fullstack.com.au. And would you say that was the start of your broadcasting 
career? Like, yeah, yeah. TV, well, TV yeah. wasn't a thing at this point, right? You no, weren't no, no, exploring no. TV at all. No, no, no. And, and yeah. it's interesting how I got that one because I was just telling someone yesterday that, and, and this is the thing that I never got taught in school and I, I wish I learned this and I would tell it to anyone who cares to listen right now. You, you can't expect to, you know, catch a ride on a comet into the stars in the industry mm. you want to eventually end up in. If you're not in the way of the comet, the comet is not going to divert its orbit and pick you up from your couch and take you. All right. You got to be, you know, just jumping up as high as you can, as often as you can, trying as many different ways to get up into that orbit again mm. and again and again. You can't, you got to just get in the way of it. And so, I kind of lucked into this at first. And then once I figured out it, I started systemizing it. This is one of the things they taught us in Amsterdam. They taught us, I went to a place called Think, uh, Think School of Creative Leadership in Amsterdam. It's an amazing place, unbelievable place. Um, and it's one of the things they taught us there was the manufacturing serendipity. Mm. And so I was, the one of the bands I'd been working for, um, so I was, uh, I was at, I finished college, the band that I've been working for, I kind of blew the gig. I kind of, kind of fucked it up and then they didn't hire me anymore. And I was like, well, what am I going to do? What am, what am I going to do now? I started playing in my own band. I was getting pretty busy there. I was on the dole. So I don't know what to do now. Mm. And so I sat down and I hand wrote a bunch of letters. This is, again, we had the post. It was a long time ago. Mm. I hand wrote a bunch of letters and I put a photograph of myself in it. Um, and I sent it to every radio station in the city. And amazingly that it, the promotions manager at a station called B105 opened that letter and he went, oh, hang on, I know that guy. I'd met him two years before that. He was the bar manager at one of the band, one of the venues that my, the, one of the bands I worked for played and I would go and see him to get the key to unlock the loading dock. Mm. His name was JJ. Yeah. And um, he's like, I know that guy, get him in. And so I came in. And, uh, you know, just Chris Farley'd my way into the, you know, if you've ever seen Chris Farley arrive on the late mm. David Letterman, mm. I did that. Mm. And um, I had long hair. I was very, I was very large, um, personality-wise. And they gave, me a, they gave me a gig. And I was like, I'm not letting that go. And every time I've had a breakthrough in my career, it has been because I have done something on spec, whether it is mm. I have sent a tape unsolicited or written a thing, um, written a script that no one's paying me to write or created a show and, you know, out of thin air. That's where the breakthroughs have been. And I, those, break, those things have then put me in the path of people who, um, like the perfect example is how I got the, I, I'm, uh, I host a show in Australia that is the Australian version of the Bachelor franchise, which is a mm. dating show that is made around the world. I had... Um, come down, I was living in America, I've been in America about 10 years. I come down to Australia and I pitched this dating show that I made and um, they bought it in the room, which never happens. They bought it in the room. We went into pre-production. We started, you know, so I'm essentially the message is um, I want to come down to Australia and do a shoot for about 10 weeks. It's in the dating space. And um, this is, you know, where I'm kind of operating at the moment. And they are like, okay, he's coming down to Australia. He's going to shoot this. He wants to be in the dating space. And okay, yeah, we we think that's a good fit. Da 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 da. About twelve weeks later, they bought the rights 
for The Bachelor. And they went, hang on a second here. And they called me up and said, hey, you know how you're doing this dating show? Yeah, yeah. We just bought a the IP and the franchise for The Bachelor. Do you want to do that instead? Yes, I do. <laughs> and that's how it happened. It wasn't, they didn't call me up out of the blue. I'd been living in America. I was out of their time. I would, I had not been on that network for four years at that point. Mm. That many other people who host stuff on TV had come and gone. I was not the first or last person they looked at, but I had, you know, launched myself up into the path of that comet, got one and then smashed into another. And every, that's happened every time, every single time. I love that. It reminds me of a line which is similar to what you just said, which is increasing your surface area for luck to strike, which is essentially this, reaching yeah. out to people, meeting people, yeah. going to events. So let's go back. We'll, we'll get to America and Bachelor in a second. You've gone from aspirations of music to radio. Yeah. And I think if you put a timeline, you're probably in the late 90s at, at this stage, right? So this is yeah. before Channel V, before that Yeah, before all breakout. that. So how does that... How does that start? How do you go from, what's the next step from radio to TV? Uh, look, look, the thing about music, I always wanted to be on stage. I always wanted to play. I, that's all I knew how to do. I could, yeah. I could play quite, when I was playing all the time, I could play quite well. Like I've got these guitars behind me. I can play them, but I can't play them like I used to because I don't play them all day. And it took me a long time to accept this and I had to accept it after the fact. It took me a long time to accept that I, I wasn't good enough at it. I was really, really good, but I wasn't exceptional. And I saw this years later when I worked on a singing show called Australian Idol. I would see people who were technically amazing, right? But the difference between technically amazing and you know, the people that ended up getting right the way to the end is, you know, it's not even the same postcode. Mm. And once I saw that, I was like, oh, right. I get it now. You know, at the time I was a bit resentful. Why? Why'd they get the other bass player in? Or how come our band didn't do this or that? It's like, oh, I know. Mm. For my part, uh, I just wasn't very good at writing songs. You know, I was mm. going to be a, a hired gun at best mm. at the time. I think I'm much better at writing songs now. I've written a heap. Um, to it around the country, but it, it kind of broke my heart to accept that. Uh, but at the same time, there's a lot of peace in accepting that, accepting that this dream that I had, I'm not as good at it as I want to be. And I'm going to have to let it go. And I did that again. I got into breakfast radio at some point again. All right. In, uh, just a couple of years back, 2016, 2017, I got into breakfast radio and it, it's something I wanted to do since I started in radio, you know, uh, some, mm. some, you know, 20 years before that. And I, I wasn't as good at it as I wanted to be. Mm. And it, and it really broke my heart that I wasn't as good at it as I wanted to be. I could definitely have gotten there, um, you know, with, you know, the amount of time and, and, you know, guidance and they were doing their very best to guide me and give me time. Um, but unfortunately the nature of the business is that, um, by the time you get to that stage, there's little time afforded. Like what I was learning how to do radio, I was terrible at it, but I was terrible at it between midnight and 6am. So no yeah. one, no one got to hear. It's real important. I said, yes, I was at a radio station yesterday. I said, oh yeah, I started and I was doing mid dawns. And she was like, what's that? I'm like, oh fuck, it doesn't even exist anymore. <laughs> mid dawns is the place where they would put people to be shit for years. And then they would be good. 
but they had to be willing to be shit for you. <laughs> and I was. What is it? Can I ask what does it mean to be good on breakfast radio? Like we see sunrise and and all these shows where these guys just wake up every morning at the craziest hours of the morning, put on makeup and just perform for hours. What is the secret behind the scenes that we don't know about? Um, oh, I don't know. If, if I knew, I, if I knew, I'd be making Dave Hughes money. Uh, but I'm not, so. <laughs> But have you have you seen have you seen them from close oh, yeah, quarters, yeah, whether yeah. it's uh, Kochi or very... uh, Karl Stefanovic? What are these guys like? What have you noticed about them that you go, you wish you had that? I think, like anything, they see you know, like any person who's masterful at their craft. These women and men, they see the they can they can look at the finished Lego model and they can you know in a nanosecond instantly identify every single brick they'll need to make it. And then mm. at the same time, as they take a breath in, we'll rebuild it and then speak using exactly the same ingredients of the thing they've just watched, seen into their eyes or the idea that's flashed across their mind. They will rearrange it and say it in something in a completely different way. And you, and I watch that sort of shit and I'm like, wow, that is, that is really something. Um, and then mm. no bits left over and it doesn't go on. You know, they're just so good. They're so good because they, they see the code. They see... They can, they can see the operating system at work. Uh, I'm, you know, I was still at that point. I'd yet, it yet to get automatic because I, I just didn't have the flight miles. And it only happens with flight miles. I didn't have the flight miles. And yeah. um, in that space, I could do it uh, by myself because I had plenty of that, but I didn't have it in the, in the team space. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, as is often the case, you know, when, if you've ever learned to ski or snowboard or surf or anything, um, We'll often, if we get into trouble, we hit a patch of ice or we, you know, on a wave that's closing out or whatever. Um, you watch people, they'll instantly look like they might be on a black diamond run and they can ski a black diamond run, but they'll instantly for a second, they'll look like a beginner because they go back to that first ever stance, their safety stance that they had when they first started. And uh, unfortunately though, I would start doing that and it would just put the brakes on. Um, what was happening in, in the course of the break and sorry, put, it put their anchors on what was happening in the course of the talk break. And, um, it didn't serve the team and, you know, brilliantly, um, I left and then the next year they went number one and as it should be, you know, cause you know, I could see at the time, thankfully through sobriety and through, you know, having some humility about myself, uh, that, you know, I was put, you know, it was hard for me to look at that really, again, it broke my heart to see that it would be better without me. Um, I was able to, you know, ultimately go, yeah, it's going to, I'm, I'm just getting in the way here. And I put that down to, you know, there's one really, you know, powerful guy that worked in, in radio in Australia. I think he's still in the audio space. His name's Craig Bruce, firsty first, two first names. He was a, um, a day jock at Brisbane when I worked there. And I told him that I was doing midnight to dawn shifts when I just started. And he goes, ah, never forget this. And I was like, okay, here it comes. Here comes the wisdom from the guy. He said, the day that your heart doesn't race before you turn the mic on, get out of the chair and let someone else have a go. Mm. And that's happened twice in my career. Twice I've, I've, I've walked away from a gig that I otherwise thought I wanted, um, but it was the right thing to do. And I'd make the joke, like when I left Breakfast Radio, I had twice the time but half the money. But it wasn't right for me to stay. And in the space where that, you know, that, day job was um i created so many other things that were far more in alignment with who i am and my values and was far less of a 
a crowbar to uh, to uh, to to execute. And I would I would you know I would want it, like teenage me to know that as well. Like if it feels really difficult, it's probably not the right thing. There's other things. You know, if you've tried everything and it's still not great, then it's okay. Someone else will show up and they'll have a great time. But there's something for you that's going to feel way easier, way better, and you'll be far more effective because it's in alignment with who you are in a far more authentic way. Go, go find that. It might take you a while, but go do it. Make it yourself if you need to. Mm. I, I find it so interesting that you talk about a radio that you couldn't make it, but in TV you did make it. And TV to me seems a lot harder than radio. Like TV, your face is on the screen. No You're telling me TV no, is radio. easier than radio? Totally. Absolutely. Radio is radio is real, real tricky. Real tricky to get right. And you can see this in the, you know, just the chasms in the data between the people that succeed and those that don't. Like if anyone could be Hamish and Andy, everyone would be Hamish and Andy. That but makes you that makes you appreciate really people like them so much because they've transitioned from radio oh. to TV to podcasts to you name it. They've done it. They are. They are so good. And there's a few, you know, you know, if George Martin was the fifth people, yeah. there's, a, there's a few third, fourth Hamish and Andys uh, who are in that team. And like, they are just so good. And, you know, I've come to accept that um, much like maybe a sprinter who debuted in the same meet that Usain Bolt did, they look across at the blocks and go, I'm never going to stand on a podium ever. And this is the only window I have to be athletic I just have to be with the idea that he's only going to run faster because I run my best. So I'll just have to run my best. Like I'll never win a Logie while Hamish mm. Blake's alive because he's that fucking good and he's that talented and he's that kind and lovely and smart and an amazing business person and just the best and fucking funny. Like it would, it would be criminal if we were ever nominated in the same category and I won. <laughs> so, so, tell, so tell me when you – we won't maybe we won't go through every role in TV because we'll be here for hours. But you've done you've done some exceptional roles on TV, and you touched on it earlier: Bachelor, American Idol, Australian Idol, Channel V. Yeah. How did you grow through that journey? I, I'm curious about that. Like, I think what's clear with what you've spoken about so far, you've got this growth mindset and this awareness. Maybe now, how did you? Th- how do you think you evolved as Osha? Um, actually, no. Before that, even you went from Andrew, Andrew, Andy G to Osha. Was that while oh, you man, were on I, TV, like, I, or was that pre-TV? Oh, look, the name change thing is like, I've come on. Um, I've I was never known by my own name. Both my parents changed their names. Um, you know, it was only in yeah. It's just I've I've rebranded a bunch of times. But was that while okay. you were doing TV? <laughs> you know, like you'd already made some of these big shows. Okay. Uh, no, no, okay. no. It was, I was, I was, I was in America, not doing any Australian television when all that stuff happened. Really so you, you, so you had gone just for uh, people listening. So you had gone from radio to the US and then TV, uh, right? Yeah. And I, I, I did television in right. America. Uh, and, um, was it Kevin? What's his name? The guy that started Wired. What's Ooh, his name? I don't know, but, mm. but yeah, he's, yeah. Oh, Kevin Smith. I'm thinking of. He's just written a book called, you know, Excellent Advice for Life or something. And he has this line in there, don't be the best, be the only. Uh, And I was like, oh, Oh, Kevin Kelly. Kevin Kelly. Kevin Kelly, right. Don't be Mm -hmm. the best, be the only. 
And I thought, like, at this point, I am the first and, as far as I'm aware, still the only Australian to have ever hosted live network television in America. Oh, wow. Now, this doesn't mean anything to anybody listening, but in my industry, it's a big fucking deal um, to do that because that's, that's, that's the Olympics. That's the main stadium. That's the 100-meter sprint, and you're up there, and that's it. Um, and it was amazing to do that in America. But I did all that um, uh, as Andrew, and then kind of before that, I already had Osher um, kind of lining up in the wings and then started to, after I got divorced and after I got sober, I, uh, I really kind of was looking for a way to differentiate the kind of guy I'd been living as and the kind of guy I wanted to be. And it helped me to, to change that. And I did. And, um, mate, it's worked out all right so far, but it's not the first time I changed my name. It's probably already the last, as I said, both my parents, the name I called them, I called them mum and dad. That's not the name anybody else called them. And the names that anybody else called them wasn't the name Mm. on their birth certificates. Mm. So, you know, yeah. Fuck off. Everyone changes their name when they True. want to. You know? and, and I have been told after you changed your name, life changed for you, right? Like things started happening and then just life. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, you know, because I'd, you know, gotten sober and I was getting my shit together. But you probably um, were just, ref- it, ref- you had a refresh, right? You probably mentally just felt. Well, I was also, I was also very, I was very much mm. on this new pathway of, you know, I had a different way of going about work and, um, I was doing work for a very different mm. reason. Um, I was chasing something very different. I used to chase um, uh, quite unhealthily uh, affirmation mm. and, and chase acceptance and chase um, uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, well, like when a, it's really not healthy, like approval. Um, I, that's never going to be enough. It's never going to do the job. And I kept going and going, pushing, pushing, pushing. It was never there. And once I started instead going, I'm just going to try and be, I'm just going to try and be there for everybody else on set. I'm just going to try and be as good as I can so that I'm just going to try and make their day the easiest day they've had at work today. I'm going to make the audio person, the wardrobe person, the lighting person, and camera person, all these people, catering person, want it to be the easiest day they can have at work. And I can do that by being on time, being polite, knowing my shit, being prepared, getting in, getting out, getting it done, not being a punish, um, communicating clearly. And that's what I just started. And by doing all those things, I ended up then just kind of trying to just sharpen, sharpen the blade that I, in a way I'd never sharpened it before. And that's kind of been, and and ultimately if I've done that, then that's great. Cause I don't, I don't work in marketing. I don't work in promos. I don't work in post-production. I don't work in any of those things. All I can be in charge of is the noises that come out of my mouth and what my body does when I'm doing that. That's all I can do. And if I've done that as good as I can and as up to the best of my ability, they say, all right, we're clear. All right, see you tomorrow, guys. That's it. That is my job done. I. I cannot attach myself to how that does in the ratings. I can't because I have nothing to do with that. I can't control if the other network, you know, is going to play, I don't know, three straight hours of, of Kim Kardashian doing something unbelievable that just stops the world. I have no control over that. And I can't be upset if it happens. I can only go, well, I did a great job that day and I'm a better person at my job to do it. 
for it. And that's it. And that's it. And and that is the irony. And we talked about it earlier with the podcast, how if you don't worry about download numbers and, and drop dropout rates, you actually perform better. And it's clear with with you. I think something you mentioned earlier, which resonates with me and a lot of people is we all look for affirmation. We're all human. We all want approval and want to be loved. And, and you've cracked the holy grail of coming out of that just content with yourself. And I'm sure there's days where you're down or you feel or you talk to your producer or what have you and they go, oh, sure, that wasn't a good piece of work. How do you deal with it now? Like, do you yeah. have practices where you deal with it now? Well, I certainly haven't cracked any <laughs> holy grail, mate. Like, there's no way that that's happened. I've just gotten a lot better at being with the discomfort of when things don't go right. And, and is that a daily exercise uh, where you've got to just... Absolutely. It's hourly, mate. It's happened three yeah, times right. in this conversation. <laughs> um, that in itself is... It, that's the cost mm. of life. Susan David, she's amazing. She's written... A, she's, a, she's a psychologist, PhD, professor. She's at a, a, a university up in Massachusetts. I think it's called Havad. <laughs> Havad. Um, <laughs> Havard. Never heard of it. <laughs> uh, a lot of, lot of Dutch. I think that was where the Dutch got to back in the day. And at Havard, uh, was oh Harvard. Oh, um, Susan David, she's magnificent. She's kind of almost an honorary Australian. She lives coming half the right. year in Melbourne. She's got this great book called Emotional Agility. She's been on my podcast. She's incredible, and she has this beautiful line that sums it up. Uncomfortable feelings are the price of admission to a meaningful wow. life. And that's it. All right. If you can deal with the uncomfortable feelings, then you are living a meaningful life. All right. If you're running away from the discomfort, unfortunately, I'm here to tell you that discomfort is just going to mm. get bigger. You know, it's like a, it's like, say, the, I'm Wolf and I got like Wolf. You remember when you were little and you got your first mm. torch and you figure out that, you know, the closer the little toy gets to the torch, the mm. bigger it gets on the wall. So essentially the, the, the further you run away, you're essentially getting a bit closer to the torch and the problems just get bigger mm. and bigger and bigger. You just have to be with it. Oh, I said a dumb thing. Oh, I was rude to somebody. Oh, I didn't appreciate that person. Oh, I forgot to do this thing I was asked to do. You know, that's uncomfortable. Learn from that. You apologize, try to make it better, try to do the right thing, try to learn from it. That's it. That's life, man. That is what living is. It's hard. It hurts. There's bits that are sad. There's, you don't get your way. You know, that's what it is. You see it played out when you've got little kids and they're dealing with frustration because they've got no no uh, impulse control whatsoever. So tantrums happen like that. If you're still having tantrums like that, you know, you were three a long time ago. You might want to figure that down regulation thing out. Um, and that's it, man. You know, that's really it. Just being with the, the, the work is, is being with when it doesn't go the way you want it and being prepared for it to not go the way you want it. Just try to do things that are in alignment with who you are. And you could do that, whatever job you've got, you know, you, you find the part of the job that aligns with who you are and what your values are and you'll be okay. Mm. Tell me, how does that translate to when you're on, TV and, and I'll tell you why I asked this. So when people come on the podcast, this one, and I'm sure you have the same experience, people feel the need to be perfect and, and come across as very shiny because they're on record or the microphone's on. And I've learned 
vulnerabilities where humans connect. And as a host, I try and be vulnerable. I talked about my high school year 12 mark earlier because I feel that allows you to be vulnerable. How does that translate your vulnerability to when you're on TV live on camera? Do you, do you, back to like producers and things, do you feel that's a constant sort of tug of war where they want you to be this person? Sometimes you're not. Uh, I don't think I ever get asked to be okay. a person I'm not. So there's no script. Um, there's no telepromp. Oh, no, no. There's definitely yeah. a script. Um, and yet, if I'm uncomfortable with saying something, I'll say, them, say to them, it's like, look, I understand what you're trying to achieve here, but ultimately these words are going to come out of my mouth and I'm the one that's going to be, you know, quoted as having said this. Are there some other ways that we could say this? And and I'm you know got to be mindful of that because I've said stuff that was written that did not align with mm-hmm. who I was and you know that has happened in my career. Um, but it's a part of you know learning my own worth and learning to put boundaries around it, and learning to make sure that ultimately I am a small cog in a very big gearbox, and we are all a big part of a very big machine. And if I can make sure that my cog keeps turning, then the rest of the machine gets to keep going. There's no need to pull the brakes on. There's no need to stop everything. It's no need to throw, you know, everybody, you know, to, to the walls. It's just understanding that at the end of the day, it's not about my feelings. We're trying to get this show made. That's the job. And that's what I'm getting paid for. So, you know, how can we work in, in, in a way that is in balance with mm. those two things? And that's the thing. Like, I'm not about to take a job on Australia's best butchers. I haven't eaten meat since the mid-90s. It's not going to be work. It's not going to work for me. It's not going to be very authentic. And I'm going to really struggle on that set, you know. Um but that's a job for somebody else and good on them. Hook in, mate. Mm. Have a great time. It's not for me. Um, when I get uh, feedback from my bosses, I used to seethe at, um, you know, any kind of critique. But that comes from you know, mm. insecurity. Now, I'm, I'm, you know, in radio very early on, you get taught like you're not good and you, there's always something you can do better. And I got – I was very lucky for that. Like once I started getting past my own ego – um, as much as I was kind of grumbling hearing it, I discovered that my bosses were actually right. And if I didn't shout so much and maybe I talked a little less, I might get better at this thing. They were right. I did. Um, unless the job calls for shouting, like the mask <laughs> singer. So there's shouting. They asked me to shout. So I shout, you know, um, and I think that's, that's a big part of it to understand that these people ultimately are, are there to help me be even better because like for many other people, like you might have an idea for a company or you might have an idea for a business or you might get, you know, come in at a junior level in a, in a big corporation or something. There's a clear path of ascension, right? One day you could mm. be CEO in our community. There's a path of ascension. You could be mm. prime minister one day. You could. You could. Like I'm going to have to give up one passport, but I, I could. Yeah, Trump's, Trump's um, <laughs> Yeah, but for me, I'm 25. Mm. You're on camera. I go, where's the ascension? Where do, what do you do from there? Um, and so that's where a lot of the off-camera stuff is. That's where in you know, creating formats and creating different projects and leaning it, like learning how to become a great keynote speaker, learning how to be the kind of speaker that, you know, you know, I get, I get booked a lot and I'm grateful for it. And I do a great job when I'm up there because I'm using skills that I've used on, you know, for all the other jobs and I bring them into, you know, the big ICC and stuff like that, like big rooms. I, I can hold a room of a thousand people for an hour. I know how to do that. Absolutely. Let's go into some of these aspects like behind the scenes. I think the first one is you've touched on it is what, what is your prep like? Like something I, so I'm a big sports fan and, and athletes talk a lot about visualization. 
and yep. just sit and visualize the room and the crowd and the and yeah. the referee or, or hecklers or, or what have you. What's that like for you, whether it's a live talk or a bachelor recording? How do you prep? Like, give me the 24 hours or 48 hours before you oh. go on stage. So um, I'm going to get to this by like some of the most important things in life I've, I, I, I learned in the backseat of a bus. It was between, um, I don't know, like a ski town that I was in in Japan with my brother and the one ATM that would take Australian cards back then in the mid 2000s. Mm. And there was a bloke at the back of the bus. And um, he he figured out where the ATM was. And so we just followed him onto this bus and we just, we didn't know where we were going. We just jumped on. And he said, do you boys, he was in his 80s. He said, oh, yeah, 80s. Old bloke called Saul. He said, do you know the five Ds? I said, no. He said, don't dither or delay, decide or delegate. And we went, oh. I said, that's why you got on the bus. You just jumped straight on. You didn't know where it was going. You jumped on. Do you know the six Ps, boys? And he's calling us boys. Like I said, he's in his 80s. Hmm. No, it's a prior preparation. Prior preparation prevents piss poor performance. Mm. And me and my brother just went, whoa. And he goes, that's the first year of business school in those two sentences. Enjoy. <laughs> and that kind of really helped me get my brain around. Uh, Cause I'd already, I, I, people ask me if I ever got nervous when I was doing a big interview with like a big band or, you know, I've interviewed, like, gratefully, I've interviewed the biggest artists in the world. And people said, do you ever get nervous? Look, I only get nervous if I don't prepare mm. and you'll, I will never not prepare. I will do so much homework, so much research and get so ready that I'm, you know, I'm drilled you know, I'm like Frost Nixon and I'm ready to go by the time the camera rolls because it's not a good interview if you find it in. And I do a lot of homework, a lot. I prep like crazy. I do heaps of research. Um, I have not much time now. So I get, I have a person, Bree Steele, she does the research for me and she prepares a great document for me. I spend a lot of time working on it, working through my questions, figuring out the direction I'd like the conversation to go. But I'm also confident enough in my ability that if my guest starts to want to talk about something else, I'll follow them down that way. And I'll start, you know, I'll use parts of the research that I know about to let them know that, you know, it's okay, I know about you. And we end up getting a great conversation out of it. When it comes to shows like, you know, Bachelor, like often I'm grateful that it's it's not a live show, but mm. I've got a lot of live TV experience and that's good. And I guess that's why they got me for it because you, on that show, the currency that we're dealing in is the authentic, uh, authentic human emotional reactions and responses. And you can't ask someone to have an authentic emotional response twice in a row. You only get one shot to let them know this thing that they're either going to be happy about, sad about, angry about, thrilled about, questioning about. Like you're only going to get that thing on their face once. You can't ask them to do it again because then it's acting and then it's inauthentic and then it doesn't work and mm. viewers know. So I get one shot when you see me on that show telling people like I'm on that job, I'm a traffic cop. I show up and I was like, I just provide the exposition. I'm like, okay, guys, here we are today. This and this and this are going to happen. Good luck. Sometimes on that show, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of stuff that doesn't make the edit, but that's, that's our only shot to let the cast. So that's our only shot to let the, the participants know um, exactly how the, how the day or the night's going to play out. So, we don't get a chance to do that again. And I have to be able to tell them as much information as possible so they're not left asking any questions and there's no uncertainty whatsoever. So sometimes those things are 400, 500 words long. 
and sometimes I'm given those things 10 minutes, 20 minutes before you roll. Now I've learned how to do that. I can, I can memorize that as ways I do it. I am, I'm very careful. I, I think my record is, I think my record's 490. I think my record's 490 in 20 minutes or so. And that is what, not, what's the, what's the benchmark? Just, just so we understand what that means. Like what's uh, an average. How long is 490 words? Four minutes, five minutes of talking, but this is word perfect. And this right. is with, because the stakes are so high where I, I cannot mess up any kind of if this, then that stuff, mm. you know, like it might be vidit today. We are going to the kitchen. You only get to choose two pans, mm. four ingredients, one of which has to be purple. You know, I don't get a chance to fuck any of that up. I have to, I have to get it right. Because if there's, you know, and go, because then there's this big scramble where people run to get whatever, you know, these shows, they have these, you know, it's the, basically the rules of the game, whatever the game is that day. Yeah. Whatever reality show is, you know, Survivor, you name it, it's all the same. How many, how many edits do you get? Like how many None. times can you reshoot? Uh, well, often, it depends on how many cameras we have. If we have enough, I only get to tell them the first time, I only get to tell them the first time once. So all the cameras are on them the first time. Right. I think very rarely when you see me do it, do you see the first time I've said it. Right. Because we don't have enough cameras. So that camera is usually on. If there's 24 people there and we've only got five cameras, you know, it's hard. So they're not going to waste one on me. They get a, mm. They want the emotional responses from the people involved. Um, so I will say it probably two or three times, but I'll have to get it word for word every time. Because if I get it wrong the second time, then that puts a seed of like, oh, hang on a second. You just told me I could grab two ingredients. Now, you say, now I can only grab one or was it yellow or purple? Which one was it? You know, I don't want to, it's got to be exactly the same. Um, and so I work really hard at that. I work really, really hard at, at um, you know, making sure that that's a skill that I can do. And it's not just the words, it's like the enunciation. It's the way that it's delivered. It's where the cameras are, where am I going to look? How am I going to do this? Which person am I pointing? Am I looking at when I say this? Cause if it's a, like there's one particular person that has a problem with purple vegetables, I want to be looking at that guy in the eye mm. you know, <laughs> and just to make sure that he knows I'm talking to him. And then hopefully his response will be, you know, decent. And, um, you know, so I, I, I'm really careful about it. And I'm really, you know, I'm really, I work really, really hard at that. Um, and I'm grateful that it's a thing that I can do because, it means they trust me enough to be able to do things like that because that's a skill that I have. Um, but that, you know, sometimes it takes a lot. Sometimes I have to do three or four of them in a day. And so I'll get up real early. And um, if I'm on the motorbike, I'll just mumble it inside my helmet. Um, if I'm driving, I'll, you know, I'll just, you'll see me in the Harbor tunnel, just saying the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. Yeah. The other aspect that you and I spoke about the other week, and I said, I'd love to ask you this. And he said, go for it was, Balancing Osha, the person on TV, and balancing Osha, the dad and the husband and the son and, and the family man. Is that a transition where you leave the studio and you come home and you've got to go, okay, the cameras are off, the lights are off, the glare's gone, it's just my kids. I was watching um, uh, Anthony Bourdain. There's a great um, doco on Netflix about Anthony Bourdain from back in the day. Oh, I'd love to see that. Unfortunately, after he passed away, it was in 2021. And that's something he speaks about where he always craved a normal life but then when he left home, he craved the airline and being on the plane 200 days a year. I'm not that famous, dude. Like he's but, like, he was real fucking famous. Like no, I get that, that, but like you've, you've tasted 
parts of that camera on, the lights are on, but then you've got family, right? And at the end of the day, we spoke earlier, we're all human. We want people to love us. We want kids. We want a partner. We want home-cooked food. We just want to put our legs up and watch watch footy. Is there a balancing point there where you've got to balance being on TV one day and the next day your kids are like, Daddy, where are we going for lunch? It's like, it's like any, it's like, it's, it's not like having cameras pointed at me makes me any more of a special person. Mm. It's not true. It's like having, it's like any person on a football field carrying or kicking a ball forward makes them any more a special person mm. than you or I. It doesn't. We have this sometimes very strange way of relating to people who have cameras pointed at them or carry balls for a job <laughs> or kick balls or hit balls for a job or just run in a particular direction for a job. Um, we have a very odd way of relating to people like that, but none of that is real. Everyone's the same. No one's better than anybody else. And I'm not better than or worse than anyone. And no one is better or worse than me. That's it. You know, um, I did, I fall into that trap uh, before I got sober. Absolutely. Did I kind of, expect that people would treat me differently. Yep. Um, I try to have a, a lot more humility about that now, but I don't think I struggle with anything um, like more than anybody else that is, you know, I don't, I don't have a, you know, I don't have vested shares. I don't have options. I don't have, you know, you know, I think about people who are the CFO or the C something O of some big company. They're like, Oh wow, man, you're like, you'll do 20 years and mm. never get fired. Shit. You know, as a mate of ours, she's she's that good at her job. She's gone under I've gone through three acquisitions. Like she's fucking amazing at what she does. Um and she's been in that same firm for like 15, mm. 20 years now. I don't have that. Mm. I'm working freelance. I am, you know, Hyman Roth, the Michael Corleone and Godfather Part Two. This is the business we have <laughs> chosen. You know, that's what I am. And that that's what mm. I've cho I've chosen this, you know. So I've chosen a life of uncertainty. I've chosen that, but it's, it's no more than anyone who's similarly doesn't sit in a cubicle mm. all day or similarly does not, you know, anyone that works in freelance or anyone that isn't an industry that is on shaky ground uh, or is transitioning from one thing to another. My broadcast desk definitely is anyone that has chosen that has chosen it for a reason because you just can't, you can't be with the stagnant nature or the, I felt, I, I had a cubicle job. I fell asleep at the mm. desk. That's not good for me. You know, there's, there's people, I work with people and I'm, I say, my joke is like, I can't do anything else. And they look at me and go, yeah, I can't do anything else either. Like camera guys are like, yeah, no, nah, no, nah, I tried. Can't do it. I have to do this. This is all I can do. And that's fine. Different people are different, are good at different things. But any, anybody else who works in a freelance game, this struggle between, the amount of hours you're putting in and the amount of work you're saying yes to for money coming in the door versus how many hours you're putting in and the amount of family connection you're saying yes to is always there. It's always, always there. There's no clear delineation between you're at work and you're at home. There never is. Because certainly if you're working internationally, like shit, mm. shit comes in all the time, man. And I get emails asking questions at night at night and I realize, oh, fuck, that person's answering emails right now. I have a chance to make a move here before the start of the game tomorrow, before the start of play, this could be good. Make a call. I'm going to say this. Is that going to work out? Okay, great. And then, you know, that's how it works though. I love that's it. the gig. I love it. And it's hard. Yeah. But it's true though. Mm. It's hard. You've got to balance that. 
you've got to balance that with the people mm. that you live under the same roof with having them, you know, mm. feel like you remember them. Mm. And that's mm. hard. And I'm not alone in that. I'm not alone in that. That's such a good answer. Thank you for just making it clear that we're all human, right? We, some of us get the lights pointed at us, but we're all human at the end of the day. So that's so it's so I'm trying to do better at it. Mate. I'm um, trying to do better. I want to change tact. And we talked about Aitana earlier. And I, I said to Aitana, I said, Osha's coming on the show. What should I ask Osha? And he said, ask Osha about his climate journey and how he's become an outspoken climate advocate. And apparently it's a interesting story. And I don't think you've spoken about it much publicly. So talk about that. When did you first, and you said you're a vegan as well. And I know you've had a number of um, plant-based meat, plant-based meat founders on your show, like people like Michael Fox from fable um how did you how did you first find out about i mean everyone knows about the climate we live in this world of course but how did you first feel the need that you could do something about it so i'm i'm old right and i remember um the montreal protocol which was when the world got together and a bunch of scientists said to a bunch of people who were making a bunch of money uh, off of uh, propellants and refrigerants hey if you keep using these propellants and these refrigerants namely chlorofluorocarbons um this hole in the ozone layer here's the data uh is gonna fuck us and we're gonna be this is not good you gotta stop and they went oh okay is there an alternative yep it's here cool and they figured it out ozone layers repairing ripper beauty and it was that time that's where the you know, to have that conversation and have the will and the political will to make that shift required people understanding what the stakes were. It's like, this is why we can't use these refrigerants anymore. This is why we can't have this stuff in our hairspray cans anymore. Um, here's, there's other ones, same job, don't destroy ozone as well. Um, but we needed to understand why. We needed to understand the stakes. And the stakes were terrifying. It was the first time we started hearing, I started hearing, I was 13 or 14, first time I started hearing about, you know, uh, sea level rise or, you know, weather patterns changing and things like that. And it was really scary stuff because this was like still in the middle of, and we tend to forget all the time, but at the time, every night on the news was, oh, here's just another reminder that we are literally on the brink of nuclear annihilation any second um, because America and the USSR were, were rattling sabers every night. And we are still on the brink of a nuclear annihilation at any second. And we tend to forget that, but we really are. And it's horrifying, horrifying. But it's, it's real. It's very real. And um, particularly with what's happening in the Ukraine at the moment, um, if Russia destabilizes, boy, there are thousands and thousands of weapons that, you know, it could be really fucking scary, man. Um, so I was, you know, very much aware of it for quite a while. And I remember feeling that kind of existential dread quite early. Um, but then I was, well, they, they signed a thing and they started moving on. I thought, oh, it's going to be better. Okay, great. And then... I started kind of finding out more and more about the um, uh, the impact on that what I was eating was having on the the world's ability to sustain humans, uh, namely that we breathe the stuff we breathe in what plants breathe out essentially, and um, we drink uh, we, we drink water and. Um, we can live three days and then we're dead. That's it. We need it. And once I started realizing that, oh, so the land that we're using for plants, we're clearing to put animals on and we're feeding food that we clear more land to grow to those animals. And then we put water that we would otherwise be able to drink into those animals to then make a product that people, oh, this, no, I don't want a part of that. 
And so I stopped. And, you know, you're in the startup space. You're like, <coughs> if I told you, hey, man, I've got this. Here's my pitch deck. <coughs> I've got this. I've got this product. It's amazing. And uh, to make a kilogram of it, I need 15,000 liters of water. Okay. Like essentially it's just a bunch of amino acids cobbled together, but I need 15,000 liters of water that otherwise people could drink. And I need just tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of land. All right. And the, you know, the bang for buck is about like a two to 98, mm. something along those lines. Or I could give you the same amount of amino acids, but it, it, it plants and I'll use like about 10 times less water and, you know, hundred times less land. Um, and, you know, the bang for buck is way, 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 way closer. And uh, it's actually way cheaper. As an investor, which one would you go for? All right. For some reason, we have this idea that, you know, we've, the, the, the capture of, of uh, uh, that the meat industry and the meat, the communication around the meat industry is, has on us is, uh, is, is really full on. And once I stopped eating it, mid 90s, and I stopped eating all animal, I stopped eating eggs in 2002. Um, once you're out of it and you start looking at the marketing around what we eat and you start to really look at the science, man, and like, I'm not, this is like the ethics came later. The, I don't want an, uh, you know, an animal to suffer that came later, but it doesn't lead me. I'm not led by it. I'm led by, uh, we need biodiversity and we need heaps and heaps of just wild forests growing to not only suck up and absorb carbon, but to make sure all the tiny little critters, the tiniest little, tiniest little microbes keep going because we don't know which one's the keystone species. We don't know which one could be the one that if we let it go, um, we all think it's bees, but if it's not, it might not be. And if we don't keep those things alive, we're fucked. And I didn't, I, I don't, you know, I can live just fine without that stuff. And I've been fine without it for yeah. a long time now. And so it's started there, man. Um, and then, look, I had a really, really difficult, difficult time uh, with climate anxiety. I was concerned and I was upset about, you know, how our country uh, has been, our state has been captured by fossil fuel industries. I don't think it's a stretch to say that, um, that some of the tax breaks and some of the subsidies we give our fossil fuel companies. And, you know, when you look at what other countries have done with their natural resources, um, you know, there's countries in the Middle East that have gone from literally living in tents to everyone lives in a high rise and has freak healthcare for life in 50 years. All right. What? We, fuck. What? We still don't have high speed rail. You know, like what the fuck? You look at, you know, countries in the, like in the Scandinavian countries who've made these incredible sovereign wealth funds, you know, like it's all off fossil fuels, but you know, they, they understood that that was for their people. It was theirs, but we, we've just taken our pants down and put them around our ankles and just please like us, you know, and we're just getting fleeced and it's not okay. It is just not okay. I'm not okay with it. Um, and once I just realized that stuff, you know, I was always quite concerned about it, but look, then one day, I don't know what it was, like all of the information that had been sitting up in my head about, you know, what well, I knew everything was going to happen. It's like, I suddenly knew any more or less than I ever did, but I, I, my climate anxiety, just basically a lot of things were not going very well in my life. And it was just the, the last thing that tipped on top of the Jenga tower. And I just had this colossal, I had, a, I had essentially had a break with reality. And I was convinced that the true and full and un like, unex, like completely unstoppable and devastating cataclysmic effects of climate change were happening. There was nowhere that could be stopped. And I was the only one that knew about it. 
past. And they were happening as, as if it were today. And, uh, you know, I wanted to run down the street and warn people. I, I, went, I went nuts. I went proper nuts. I had episodes uh, essentially that were called paranoid delusions mm-hmm. and episodes of psychosis. Um, like they were very valid worries, all right? And it's not like you look at what happened mm-hmm. in Pakistan last year or you look at Black Summer here, all that shit. Like that's the stuff that I was seeing flashing around in my head. Um, and it's, you know, what you felt looking at that, you know, I was feeling like a, like that's a rational feeling of sadness and a rational feeling of existential dread. And that's okay to understand how much trouble we're in. I was feeling a, just like a thousand times version of that. And it was really bad. And I got, I got very, very sick, but thankfully some very clever doctors helped me a lot. I was on all the different meds and I was a lot of, a lot of, you know, different combinations of medication and some really great psychiatrists and psychologists. And, um, you know, there, I, I worked really hard at getting better because I just refused to go through the rest of my life feeling this way. And um, I just became like very, very focused on on trying to get as well as I could. And one of the doctors that I've worked with, she is a uh, acceptance commitment therapist. And she's the one that really showed me and taught me the skills and gave me the tools about uh, living life in accordance with my values and by doing that, but living life in accordance with my values and and being willing to be with how uncomfortable it is to realize the full and true devastating fucking trouble that we're in and how actually fast we've got to get our shit together um, because it's not like it's, the laws of thermodynamics do not give a shit who you vote for. They do not care about your GDP. Like you can't escape it. We cannot escape it. And it's we're literally going to get our feet held to the fire. We could choose not to. Some of us might even make a ton of money doing that, but ignoring it is mm. not a good idea. And it was working with Janine that I understood that by avoiding it, it was actually making it way worse. And the only way to get live my life in the face of this that is happening more and more and worse and worse and it's inescapable and it's not going to stop and it's just going to get worse as my kids grow up is to act in accordance with my values and to act in accordance with my values. That is to have conversations with climate leaders, have conversations with economists, have conversations with, you know, founders and, and people who are looking at different ways of doing things. And oh, to my, does my heart race when I have those conversations? Yes. Do I sweat strangely in odd places and do I feel uncomfortable when I have those conversations? It's awful, but I've got to do it every day. And I've got to read those things every day because that keeps me in a place where I'm able to just be with what is happening. Now that's what I have to do every day. Other people can yeah. just go by and get by, but I don't, I actually have to like daily. I have to reflect on it, but another lens to look at it is the concept mm-hmm. of memento mori is to the concept of to meditate on your own death and understand that, yeah, your children are going to die. I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. My wife's going to die. My dogs are going to die. You know, the black cockatoos that flew past my house this morning, they're going to die. Everything dies. Wayne Coyne from the Flaming Lips, he said it. Everyone mm. you know one someday will die. And it, you know, if I can be with that dread, that dread around, you know, inaction, climate inaction in my country and, and you know, what is happening and is waiting, um, I can use that way of, you know, of memento mori and just go, okay, well, I can't do anything about 50 years from now, right now, but I can enjoy the smile on the face of this kid and I can listen to the sound of that black cockatoo and I can enjoy the smell of that melaleuca 
right now. Mm. And that's, that's mm. all I can do. That's all I can do. And then still have the conversations because I think it's really, it's still, it's a balance of the two. It's a balance of being in the moment as much as you can yeah. and then doing what you can. Yeah. Um, and that seems to be yeah. what's worked out for me. Wow. What an answer. I would love to ask follow-up questions, but we're running short on time. Uh, I would love to close with a quick rapid fire final sprint, Osha. Is there one investment sure. you've made that you consider the best in your life, non-financial? Oh, the best investment mm. that I've ever made in my life is the money that I spent on mental mm. health professionals without mm. a shadow. One thing you'd like to learn in the next six months? Hmm. One thing I would like to learn in the next six one thing I would like to learn in the next six months is um, really, really effective prompts for large language <laughs> yes. models. I think we all want to learn that. So let me know once you've learned it. Yeah. We can you can sell that for a lot of money. Is there one public figure you'd love to meet? Oh, um, or maybe one public figure that you followed that you're inspired by. I think. Um, I think I'd, I I would I would I would like I would like to mm -hmm. meet Greta Thunberg. Mm. I would like mm. to meet her. I would like I would like to mm. I would like to have a chat with her. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The first ninety percent of our conversations would be me justifying the carbon that I burned <laughs> to get there. But the next fourteen yeah. seconds. And last one: Is there one person or quote that inspires you today? Uh -huh. Today, um, look, it would be my former manager when I lived in America. I had this manager who's a very, very powerful TV guy at the time. He's passed away since bloke by the name of John Ferreter. He was on the podcast, which is great. And we talked all about this on that episode. Uh, but he told me one day, only you know how hard you've made. He said, only you know how hard you've worked to make your dreams come true. Now, what that means with it is like, I could say to you, oh man, I did the pitch. And the VC wasn't interested. You go, ah, it's cool. It's a good product. Yeah, I know. I'll try next time. Yeah, you will. Or oh, I didn't get into the uni course. I know you tried. Yeah, I tried. Oh, she doesn't want to go with me. Ah, oh, fair enough. You tried. I tried. No worries. Yeah. But I am the one that has to live the rest of my life lying in bed by myself, knowing exactly how much work I actually put into that. And did I do absolutely everything I could? Did I miss anything? Did I fuck around with my phone rather than doing a little more research? Did I run through it enough times? Did I work enough on myself so that person may have wanted to go out with me? Did I fix whatever the fuck went on so that I, I you know, caused the last relationship I was in? Did I work on that? To, because, you know, the last relationship I was in didn't go well. Did, have I worked on enough of me to make me an attractive prospect for someone to want to go out with? Because I'm the only one that actually knows that. And I'm the one that has to live with that for the rest of my life. And I'm, I punish myself. So that, that is a really, that's really powerful, that one. Mm. And I think about mm. that every day. That's a great note to end on, man. Can I just say thank you so much for joining me? You've inspired many of us and you're very candid with your story, which I think is always nice to hear for someone who's on TV, who's also a human at the end of the day. So, Osher Ginsberg, thank you for joining me. You got it, man. Thanks, man. Well, there you have it. That's my conversation with Osher Ginsberg. I hope you enjoyed learning more about Osher's story from his sunrise to today. I really enjoyed his candor 
and reflections on the decisions he's made, the many sliding doors moments, and I loved him taking us behind the scenes of how broadcast TV works and his most painful learnings. I must admit I was really surprised to learn radio is much harder to host compared to TV and loved his answer on how he prepares, especially the five D's and the six P's. So let me know your thoughts on this episode and I will catch you soon.